Hi, everybody. Great to be here today. Hello. <laughs> Bit of audience participation. Very good. As you know, my name is Stuart, and it's a privilege to be here today with you to consider this passage, this, and particularly this one verse, verse 11. If you're regular here, you know that we have been, prior to this series, following a series looking at the Ascent hymns, the hymns that the Jewish people would have sung on the way up to the temple. And prior to that, we looked at the wonderful little book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. Um, but this is a bit different, this series we're doing now. This series is a series on famous verses, and we're doing about 12 weeks of that, interspersed with 40 days of community. And um, we've got to our third verse. These are verses that maybe you found really helpful in your journey to get to know Christ and know what it means to be a Christian. It's also verses that maybe you've written on cards or written in emails to encourage people or either at times of great change in somebody's life or um, even at times of trouble. Um, and tonight, as you've just heard, read beautifully by Claire, uh, we get to Jeremiah 29.11. No bias there at all. Our third famous verse. So can I do a quick straw poll? Who's seen this verse before? Who's used this verse? Who's have been many, many of us? So that's wonderful. Hopefully, through that verse, you found great strength and reassurance. Well, the first thing I want to say is I don't want to undermine the value that you find in that verse to one iota. I believe that all scripture is God-breathed. And with that in mind, it's great today to spend some time to look at this verse even more and deepen our knowledge about that verse and look at the richness of God's word. So it would be great if you keep your Bibles open. Uh, we're on page 789, if you'd like to do that. Or, of course, your Bible app, if you're more of a modern type of chap, which is great. Um, so that's Jeremiah 29, focusing particularly on verse 11. So first of all, I think... Oops, I'm going to move forward, otherwise I'm going to trip over if I go back. Um, first of all, let's understand a little bit of context. Who was Jeremiah? And what were the times in which he was writing? Well, Jeremiah was a prophet called by God to speak his words to the Jewish people. Well, at that time, the Jewish people were actually split into two kingdoms. There was a kingdom in the north part of the Promised Land and a kingdom in the south. The north part was called Israel. The south part was called Judah. And Judah encompassed Jerusalem itself. And Jeremiah was a prophet in the Judean part of the Promised Land. This was some 600 years before Jesus was born. And from the start of our reading today, we can see that some of the people at that time had been carried off into exile by the powerful neighboring state of Babylon. Essentially, chapter 29, the whole chapter that we're looking at, is really a letter from Jeremiah to the people. And we can see the address of the letter in the very first verse, of, um, of the chapter saying, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the prophet, to the priests, the prophets, and all of the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's the address, that's who it was written to, that's where it was going, this letter. So the people in exile... Uh, they're, they're in exile under the rule of this powerful 
uh, a leader, this powerful enemy, and the elders opened the letter and would have read it to the people. It was mixed news. Maybe they were hoping to actually hear immediate plans to come and rescue them and bring them back to Jerusalem. But that's not really what they got. Look at verse 10 uh, that Claire read first of all, where it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. Hardly immediate, is it? 70 years' time, I will come and rescue you. For so many of the adults there, this was saying, basically, you're never going to see Jerusalem again. Your grandchildren might, or your great-grandchildren might, but you're not. Picture the scene when the head of elders read this part of the letter. I'm sure that there wouldn't have been many cheers of joy at this 70 years gap. Now imagine a different type of scenario. Imagine if the postman with uh, Jeremiah's letter was on his way and he had his big bag of post and he was by his campfire and one letter fell into the fire. And he thought, I wonder what that was. And they thought, oh gosh, that's that important letter from Jeremiah. I need to get it out. So he scrabbled in it and he got it out and there was just a little bit left. And all that was left was verse 11, our key verse for tonight. And so he put it back in an envelope and took it on to Babylon. And they would have read, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Just taking that verse in isolation would have given a very different picture. They would have read all sorts of possibilities into that single snippet of a letter, that tiny fragment. Many would have thought that the Judean SAS would be readying themselves imminently to come and rescue them any day now. And I think this is the danger of us taking one verse and just looking at one verse and not looking at it in context. So my illustration was trying to show that. So we're going to be very careful tonight in actually looking at the context of that verse and what each word means within it. Now, through work and also through family holidays, I've had a chance of visiting the United States quite extensively. And I've had the privilege of visiting some great churches in the US as well. Two churches particularly come to mind in my travels. The first one was uh, we as a family lived in Chicago for a little while. And uh, Willow Creek Church in Chicago is an amazing church, one where Bill Hybels is the head pastor. Uh, and also the other church that comes to mind is Redeemer Church in New York City, uh, led by Tim Keller. Many of you may have read books by Tim Keller or, or uh, Bill Hybels. And um, I personally have got a great deal out of their teaching and encouragement. In addition, we, you may have picked up on this, but we're about to read a book called 40 Days of Community, written by Rick Warren, a pastor on the West Coast in California. So many of our modern theologians, the most inspiring Christian writers, not all, but many of them come from the United States. But we need to be discerning when we read and when we look at things on the web, etc. Because one worrying impact in the, in the US is that there's a significant minority of churches that have a completely different understanding of verses like our key verse today. Their interpretation of this different meaning 
has become known as prosperity gospel. This understanding goes something like this. They say that if the kingdom of God is at hand and we are God's children, surely God wants us to be both healthy and wealthy. And if we pray hard enough, this is what will happen. We'll all get great jobs and not have money issues and have perfect health. They equate words like prosperity to financial gain. And with phrases like, not to harm you, that if we believe enough in him, we will not be ill at all. These are extremely dangerous thoughts, but they're yet attractive. Often these churches hold large rallies in impoverished areas uh, where people are struggling with poverty and sickness. And they claim that God will heal all of those who believe in him. Now, I want to be really careful here. God does sometimes heal. And through a right relationship with God, many people are released from addictions or self-destructive behaviors. But presenting this gospel, that there's a sort of deal going on, that if you believe, you will be healed. Or the flip side, if you don't believe enough, then you won't. It's almost like it's your fault if you're in financial trouble or illness. So I'm going to do another quick poll. Those of you who are Christians here, put your hand up if since becoming a Christian, you have never been ill, and you have never had any financial worries, and you've never been anxious. Okay? Linda raised her hand, but I think she was just scratching her head. Okay, (laughs) good. So, and I haven't raised my hand. Uh, So our instinct must be that something is wrong with that interpretation. As we wrestle with this interpretation of this verse, we need to think of what else we know about God and how that knowledge compares with what this interpretation is all about. Now in this quest to know about God, then I've got a little methodology little structure that I want to introduce to you. It's in the batting order, and the batting order has lots of other verses that I reference. So if you wanted to look at these later on, then please go ahead and do it. But the thing I want to introduce you to is something from my training, which is called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Okay? Basically, it just means there are four areas we can find out about God. And those are summarized as the first and the foremost is... Any guesses? Well, you can read in my batting order. It's scripture. Scripture is number one place to go to to find out about God and how he is and how he relates with us. The next three, and in no particular order, um, are, first of all, in no particular order, are tradition. And tradition can sound quite fuddy-duddy and old, However, tradition, all tradition is, is Christians before us struggling to understand God and trying to put it in words, their understanding of him. So things like the creed, things like our hymns, things even like our modern songs are all about other Christians trying to put their praise or their understanding of God into words. And we would be daft not to learn from other Christians who've struggled with these things in the past to actually work out, what is this God thing all about? Um, For us, in this service, often our tradition comes from our songs. 
So um, as songs which may be a decade old, two decades old, maybe if only a few years old. And one example I'd like to give of actually looking at a song and thinking about a song and what it says is a song that we've been singing for the last few weeks, not tonight, has been a song called um, All Your Promises Are Yes and Amen. Do you remember this song we've been singing recently? Yep. Okay, all, all your promises are yes and amen. What does that mean? Do you know? Any idea? We should be troubled if we don't know. And I, I was doing prayer ministry, and somebody from the congregation came up, didn't want to talk about prayer ministry, wanted to talk, Stuart, what on earth is that song about? And I didn't know. And I had to go away and look it up, and I haven't got time to explain it to you today. You're going to go away and do some... Uh, some homework. It's in 2 Corinthians 1, and it's in the, the, the uh, batting order, so you can take it away and look it up and look what up that means. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to spoil your fun, but go away and look, at the, look that up. Tradition. Don't look it up <laughs> now. The next thing is the third leg in this quadratural is reason. God gave us brains and gave us intellects for a reason. He wants us to think through these difficult things. He wants us to struggle, to wrestle with theology, to struggle with words, because our understanding will be better because of that. Our understanding of him, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of our relationship with him. If you struggle with a piece of scripture, don't just go, oh, well, I'll, I'll just leave it and move on to the next bit. Before you know it, the Bible would be half empty if, if you ripped out every page you didn't understand. Let's struggle with things. Let's seek help in them. That's one of the reasons why we have home groups, is that we can help each other in small, intimate, safe groups, in asking each other, do you understand this? Have you got any idea what Stuart was going on about last Sunday? It's useful to do that. that your sessions in home group may be very long this week. The fourth thing in this Wesleyan quadrilateral is experience. God is a God of relationship. Now, when we are in a relationship with a human being, as that relationship grows, we start to gain a history with that other person. We remember how that other person reacted, how that other person maybe cared for us or looked after us or helped us or just was there for us. And that's absolutely the case with God. As we walk through life, we should remember the good times, the times when we felt his presence, the time when he's answered prayer, the time when he's been there. Because being human, we are up and down like a roller coaster. God is constant. And quite often when we are down and we feel God's not present, let's just think back to when he has been present and remind ourselves of that. For me, I have a very bad memory. And... When I'm, um, so I write a lot of journaling down. So I write down those experiences of God. And it's great to look back when I'm feeling down and actually look back when I've known he's been there. Okay. So if you are gaining in this unhappiness with this prosperity gospel, I hope you are, let's look why. So we'll focus on scripture now and we'll focus on some key scripture items for the rest of this talk of why is it wrong and even dangerous. And as we're doing that, we're obviously using our intellect. We're also using our experience of church, our experience of tradition, and our experience of God and life. 
So what can we do to start looking at a verse like this? Well, one of the things you can do is, if you're questioning this, is look at a different, tradition, a different translation of the Bible. So we've got the NIV version, which is the Pew Bibles. We can open up another Bible on our dining room table if we've got that. Or with the internet now, you can open up hundreds of different Bibles. So with BibleGateway.com or something, you can open up multiple versions in parallel. Now, the different translations are genuine translators trying to encapsulate into modern-day English the word, in this case, written in Hebrew. So they're trying to get the essence of that word that we can understand in our modern-day culture and with our modern languages. That's what they're doing. And they will do different qualities of jobs in doing that. And they'll also encapsulate different parts of that Hebrew word. So it's good sometimes to look at different versions. So I looked at the Amplified uh, Bible to look at a different version. And this is, I'm going to read it to you. This is the slightly amplified version of that, that, um, that verse. For I know the plans and thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for peace and well-being and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Peace and well-being has a very different slant on it than prosperity. And it adds so much more than just finance and health. Bringing more... Um, and actually, the word in Hebrew that is being used here is actually shalom, which there's some faces dawning on there. Shalom means... It's a, it's a really beautiful, very special word in Hebrew. It means a special peace, a harmony, a wholeness, with, often with God or with our fellow man, man or woman. So it's that idea of wholeness, harmony, peace. And this is what I think Jeremiah is talking about. God has plans and thoughts, desires for us to have shalom with him and with those around us. In this midst of being in exile, this would have been so beautiful for these Hebrew people to hear. God had not forgotten them and wanted to give them peace and harmony with him. Peace today with God and with those around us is possible through his grace and love, through the guidance of his Holy Spirit, through his shalom. Another phrase that comes to mind with this idea that if you are in a Christian, uh, if you are in a relationship with God and you know Christ, then everything is rosy. Do you know the phrase in English, the sun shines on the righteous? Do you know that phrase? I hate that phrase. That phrase is a complete misquote of a verse from the Bible. It actually comes from Matthew 5.45. And the, the quote from Matthew 5.45, do feel free to look it up, is he causes his sun to rise, sun being the sunshine, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It means complete opposite. It doesn't mean just good things happen to good people. It means good things and bad things happen to good people, and good things and bad things happen to bad people. And don't we know it? You know, it's so obvious. Our experience is that. You know, both good and bad things happen to good and bad people. Again, these words from Jesus seem to contradict this prosperity gospel position. The next verse that comes to mind that I want to bring to your attention is all about our relationship with God and money. And so what verse comes to mind? A very famous verse, 
from Matthew 6, 24, which says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the interesting thing, when you look this up at home, notice that the word money has a capital M in your translations in the, in the NIV. That's because this isn't comparing God with the physical usefulness of having notes or credit cards in your wallet. It's not comparing those. It's comparing our emotions to money, where we place money, the importance of money in our lives, where we place wealth, where we place avarice, where we place the hunger to have more money or a bigger promotion or a bigger car or a bigger house, whatever. This is saying we cannot serve both God and the desire to gain more and more wealth for its own sake. This again contradicts prosperity gospel understanding of our key verse. A verse from Jeremiah cannot be about prosperity, meaning just wealth. Maybe we're getting to the point where we're starting to get, uh, starting to understand that health and wealth interpretation of this verse is not right. Have I made my argument now? But I think it's more subtle than just, yes, we, of course we don't agree with that. We know our reality is that we all do get ill and we have worries and we have anxieties, both from health and other anxieties. But I think sometimes it's a continuum. So sometimes in our prayers, we might in our prayers revert immediately to our shopping list of things we want to ask God for, rather than what the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus himself taught us to do, which is first of all in our prayers, recognize who he is, our Heavenly Father, and then also straight afterwards to say, not my will, but your will be done. One other contextual thing I'd like to share with you is that for the last few weeks I've been doing a lot of traveling globally. And um, as I was preparing this sermon, this is really strange, as I was preparing this sermon, I was actually in the United States, in Las Vegas, um, on a conference, staying at Caesar's Palace, preparing a sermon on prosperity, surrounded by that opulence, um, walking through the casino on the way to my room, past slot machines, people chinging away, putting money down on a, on a roulette table, all those sort of things. And it was an extremely strange place to prepare a sermon. But I do recommend it. It does focus the mind. <laughs> Even at one point, um, I took my iPad down to the pool and sat by the pool and was writing this sermon by the pool. So it, it was very odd. Um, so last Sunday morning, I decided to leave Caesar's Palace for a while and find a church. So I googled and I found an Episcopalian church, which is part of the Church of England, in one of the suburbs just outside Las Vegas. Um, and just as an aside, it was a fantastic church. You know, you walk into some churches, and I hope that when people walk in here, we welcome you, we welcome each other. When I went there, I was immediately welcomed. I felt, felt like I'd been going there forever. The service was great, it was very um, inclusive, the teaching was strong, and there was a barbecue afterwards. Um, and this was a, in a poor area um, of the Spanish area of the city. Um, they had four services, two in Spanish and two in English in the morning. I went to the English one, so I did understand it. Um, 
So anyway, to get to Caesar's Palace, to this church in the suburbs, I got a taxi and gave the guy the address. The taxi driver asked me what type of place it was. He didn't recognize it as, you know, it was 7,000-something street. And um, so we got there. So, 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 sorry, he asked me what type of place it was. I said a church. And he said, without a, a smile on his face, oh, you're going to pray for more winnings. I said, what? And he said, no, no, no. And he was a bit offended by me laughing. He said, no, no, I get lots of people who ask to take them to the church to pray, either for their losses or for more winnings. Um, and that left me really pondering and, and was a superb illustration for my next point. <laughs> um, so thank you, God, for providing that for me. And that point is that this verse here says, it says, I have plans for you. God saying, I have plans for you. It does not say, let me know what your plans are and I will make them happen. God doesn't say that. Sometimes we think he does, but read the words. He has plans for us, not, tell me what your plans are and I'll just make it happen like some fairy godmother. This is all about God's plan for us, not our plan for God. And I think that's a key takeaway tonight. God's plan for us may be very different to our plan for ourselves. Here in our verse, we can be reassured that his plan for us is truly for our prosperity, which goes far beyond health and wealth. In fact, the most important thing that matters in life is this peace, this tranquility, this righteousness with God and with others that can really only come from and by God's grace. One example from the Old Testament of somebody's life that went very different to what he planned was Joseph. Joseph, do you remember in his um, uh, starting life, proud in his flashy jacket, prancing around in front of his brothers? Uh, no wonder they robbed him and threw him down a, a well. Um, I'm not condoning that type of behavior, but um, it was sort of understandable. He was sold into slavery, into Egypt, then got falsely accused of committing adultery with Potiphar's wife. Then his fortunes changed, and Pharaoh eventually put him in charge of all of the land of Egypt. Well, at the end of this story, and you can look this up in Genesis 45, Joseph could see that God's hand was actually on him the whole time. And when he's standing there 20 years later with his brothers coming to Egypt in desperate need, he says to them, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives for a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. So often, it's only with hindsight that we can see that even through the tough times, God is there. And he so often can use even our big misfortunes in life to show his love for us and his love for other people. It rains on us just as much as anyone else, as, as Christians or non-Christians. Well, what a privilege and what a shalom that we know that whatever happens, he is with us. Jesus did not say that life was going to be easy following him. In fact, he said the opposite. In Matthew, uh, Matthew 16, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
adding, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So Jesus' words are there for us, far more important than even gaining the wealth of the whole world is the state of our souls, the state of our relationship with him. If we need just one more piece of evidence before I finish, we only have to look at Jesus' life. At the end of his life on earth, just look at how the world would have considered Jesus' prosperity on that Thursday of Holy Week, just before he was crucified, as he awaited that following day to be executed in the most cruel and painful way that the world could inflict at the time, being nailed to a cross, convicted, abandoned by so many of his friends, crowds shouting, crucify him. At this point, what a failure the world would have thought. But from that, from this desolate failure, came the rescue plan for the whole world. And with hindsight, we look back and we worship. Through Jesus, we can all truly prosper. We can all truly have shalom. We can truly know him and know that we are so loved by him, giving us complete confidence and hope in the future with him and that whatever happens here on this earth, however much it rains or it's sunny in our life, nothing, nothing can separate us from his love.